Welcome, everyone, to episode 137 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're reviewing the last of this year's Best Picture nominees, The Father. With me on the journey today, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Scott. Um, I had a one of the more normal Saturdays that I've had in quite a while in terms of hanging out with friends yesterday. I went up to Charlotte, got to see a bunch of my friends from law school you know we went out to dinner a couple of bars and stuff it just it felt very normal um you know there were people around and everything um and it it was it was really nice honestly i i didn't you know realize how much i mean i did to to some extent realize how much i missed it but um you know when we were together i was like wow i really did miss this and it, it it was incredible that you know it had been 10 months or something since I've seen a lot of them just because, you know, the bar exam was kind of the last time that we were all together. So it was nice to, uh, to be back together around the time last year when we sort of like, you know, the pandemic started and we, we yeah. were abruptly taken away from our last couple of months together in law school. So that was nice. Yeah. TBD. If you ever have that, uh, graduation ceremony in person. Oh, it's happening. Uh, but you know what? It's on a Monday morning, so I will not Monday be morning. I, look, the, here's the what? thing. And for all this, sorry for all the Wake Law administrators who probably listen to this podcast. Uh, they haven't cared about us the second the class of 2020 stepped out the door. They said, forget you guys. Um, that that date is for the class of 2021. And they're just including the class of 2020 because they feel obligated since we didn't really get a ceremony last year. But I don't know how many people are going to attend actually for my class. I'm certainly not attending. I probably couldn't even if I wanted to because yeah. I work uh, as everyone else does. Maybe, yeah, um, maybe the Wake Law administrators assume that no one could get a job after the education. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, well, they certainly don't help you. Let me put it that way. Yeah, it certainly felt that way with the stories you were telling around the bar exam and stuff, the stuff they were doing for that. Yeah, uh, not great. Yeah, well, great, Bob. Uh, not not to show the hands too much, but to talk about something that I think uh, is a little bit better than not great. Today's episode, we will be dotting our I's and crossing our T's on this year's Best Picture nominees by reviewing The Father, directed by Florian Zeller and starring Anthony Hopkins in the titular role alongside Olivia Coleman in the film's probably biggest supporting role. The Father tells the story of the aging Anthony, played by Hopkins, who lives alone with a revolving door of caretakers as his memory and temperament slowly start to decay. When his daughter, Anne, played by Coleman, tells him that she will be no longer able to visit him on a regular basis as she's planning to move to Paris to live with her new boyfriend, Anthony may be faced with the ultimatum of getting along with a new caretaker, Laura, played by Imogen Poots, or being forced into an alternative living arrangement. Scott, I will stop there. Pretty vague. And probably really only a good summary of the first like five minutes of the movie before things mix up a little bit. But The Father has been lauded for its two main performances, as well as its particularly empathetic portrayal of an aging individual battling dementia. Simply put, do you agree with the critics or is The Father a purely Oscar Beatty play adaptation designed to win a couple acting Oscars? 
Yeah, you know, that last uh, descriptor there about it being Oscar bait, I think is kind of what I had dismissed the movie as, um, at least, you know, sort of in, in the initial goings of, of this movie. And, you know, I I can't say that, you know, we, we've kind of moved on from 2020 movies, so to speak, Um now and you know this is like officially a 2020 movie i guess but um i think we would count this as a 2021 movie in in any other year though just because it didn't get a it didn't even get a a narrow release a limited release until the end of february but sure yeah um but yeah you know we've kind of moved on and i i you know i'm looking ahead towards 2021 and you know other movies that i have to watch for various reasons um so my point is i don't know that i even would have watched this movie if not for the uh the, it getting the nomination for best picture you know i kind of now that we do this i feel obligated to at least yeah. watch all of the best picture nominations um but i'm glad that i did uh glad is maybe not quite the right uh adjective because you appreciate that you did look yeah i i appreciate that i did um because i think that this film is excellent i, I think it is excellently uh, made and acted and written and edited. Um, I think it's it, it's hard for me to say many bad things about the the construction and composition of this film. Um, and I, at the same time, I, I am uh, sitting here saying that my opinion about this movie is never going to change, and that's because I am never going to watch this movie again. Uh, I, I feel pretty firm in saying that. Uh, Despite, again, the, the excellence of, of everything that is on display here, um, this movie is a hard watch. It is one of the harder watches that I have had in quite a while. And even at 96 minutes, it is emotionally exhausting. Um, and again, that's all a compliment, right? The fact that it can make you feel um, so much in that runtime um, is, is absolutely an achievement uh, for, you know, Florian Zeller, the director, the entire cast. Again, Florian Zeller here adapting his own play. Um, and, and, adapting, first, and it's his first directing. It's his first like, yeah. at least feature-length directing outing, too. Adapting it for the screen, you know, we've talked about stage play adaptation several times here in recent months. Um, you know, there are quite a few circling around the Oscar um, conversations this year. And uh, this is the first one that I feel like not only does the does you know that it never really feel like constrained by the it's you know stage roots walls. or whatever yeah. to use that phrase um but honestly i feel like this movie this almost works better as a film than it would as a play i i don't know what the play is like specifically um obviously because i i mean i haven't seen the play um but the things that they're able to do with the editing here and you know the specifically the fluidity of the editing um I think are able to put you in such a disorienting headspace, uh, you know, which is obviously the same headspace that uh, Anthony Hopkins character, Anthony um, finds himself in for the, the entirety of the movie um, that I just don't think that you could do it in such a fluid and clean manner. If you were doing this on a stage right there, there'd have to be breaks and stuff like that. It seems like um, otherwise, yeah, it would, it would be, it would, it would get even more confusing to the point of like, I don't even want to, continue paying attention to this type of confusing if you know they're trying to do these same sort of editing tricks um on well, a, you, you a just can't, you just simply can't do it right like you just yeah. have these scene breaks where these fluid editing takes happen you would just have scene breaks and it, yeah it would it would all seem like one scene if you were doing this if you if you tried to do this on on stage and it just like would be all wrong uh, and you know things have to be changed on the set like 
elements of the production design have to be changed. You know, new actors and stuff have to be cycled in because that's part of the disorientation that's going on. Um, but yeah, you know, between this and Nomadland, it feels like we've really gotten to um, a level in 2020 of depicting elderly people with a great amount of empathy and compassion um, on screens and specifically elderly people like dealing with end of life issues. Um, in the case of Nomadland and others, not a lot of examples that come up throughout the movie, in the case of this movie, dementia. Um, and you know, the, it's it's a hard watch. Like I said, on, on paper, you, you a lot of people are probably just going to be turned off by reading that. Oh, this this movie is about an old man, you know, experiencing dementia, and um, you know, and I, I don't need to see that. That's just too depressing. Um, but at the same time, like again, the empathetic portrayal of these people, I think, is very important um, to understand. And I I think the, the way that the movie depicts dementia specifically is, is pretty fascinating because it's not just this disorienting um, thing where, you know, people are changing identities and, you know, again, changing clothes and elements of the sets and production design are changing. Um, In just many ways, this, it's not disorienting, actually. It's like actually for, quite. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, for the it, it's they're not just changing for the sake of changing to be like, oh, look, it's it's isn't this weird how things are always changing in this room? Like the things that he is seeing and experiencing, for the most part, there is like some sort of truth to them. A lot of times, um, he just he's kind of like messing up the chronology um, in his head of certain events, or um, you know, people are again the people are switching identities and stuff like that. But there is a sort of cohesiveness to um the way that his thought process works and part of the interesting um way that the movie um develops is the puzzle pieces start locking into place right and we are understanding what we have been seeing not as like some sort of surreal thing that never really happened or you know something like that that he's just invented in his mind but as sort of these fragments um that again uh have to he can't really assemble them hey, like because his, his mind is like constantly resetting in a, in a, in a certain way. Um, and, and so it, it's a fascinating look at it, I think, because it, it would have been easy just to, you know, I think depict it, like I said, as surreal and, you know, these, he's, he's forgetting all these things and he's inventing things that never actually happened and stuff like that. But uh, there is a sort of honesty and truth in a lot of the things that he's seeing, you know, there's all this stuff about his other daughter, Lucy, um, that again, there's, as we start to learn more about the story, as the movie develops, you know, we see that, oh, well, some of these things he's remembering, I mean, yeah, they might, they might've actually happened. And, um, yeah, yeah. I don't want to get too much into this in, further into spoilers. I may have already said too much, but, um, I do think that, um, uh, this movie can be, can be spoiled probably by, um, revealing a lot of stuff up front. So just, you know, on a general level, I think this movie is really, really well done. Um, I, I do think people should watch it, but I do think you should know that it's going to be a very hard and emotionally taxing watch. But I do think you should watch it because it is so excellently composed and, you know, the performances, I, I don't know how this movie doesn't get nominated for best ensemble at the, the SAG Awards. I mean, this, we, we kind of talked last week at the SAG Awards about how, oh, well, The Trial of the Chicago 7 is kind of like the one true ensemble film, or like what you think of when you think of an ensemble film um, this year, and maybe that's why it kind of took the award. And then I saw this, and I was like, 
yeah, maybe there's only six or seven actors in the movie entirely, but all of them are having to do something so difficult because, again, because of that ever-changing nature of the movie and, uh, uh, you know, from scene to scene, um, there, you know, are things that have to change about their performance. And, you know, again, whether that's Anthony Hopkins, Olivia Coleman at the top of the bill, or whether it's further down with people like Olivia Williams and Rufus Sewell and, um, you know, just the, the small cast, but they're all excellent. And, and this movie, um, it, it, I was really, really surprised at how much um, this movie affected me, particularly in the last half hour. Yeah, I I think I kind of went in maybe with a little bit less of a cynical perspective on it, but not really feeling all that different from what you're describing. I mean, I, I love my fair share of Oscar bait, so I wasn't trying to I wasn't going in feeling any sort of like jaded way or eye rolly way. And I was excited to watch it because it was the one that, you know, the one nominee that I hadn't seen. And I am a big fan of Olivia Coleman, um, even if I guess the favorite, which is her most recent, like notable work, um, you know, wasn't one of my favorite films from that year. But big fan of her, so I was excited going in. Anthony Hopkins, I haven't seen, you know, I've seen some of his performances, but the guy's done like probably like a thousand movies. So I haven't seen most of his work. Uh, but for me, Scott, I, I'm i kind of on the same page as you. I think this film is remarkable. I found it to be, you know, one of one of the more moving movies that I've seen in the last, you know, year since quarantine started. I've said that several times, and I, and I mean it every time that I say it, I feel like. And one of the things, I guess, just at a high level before I talk more specifically about this movie, is just like it feels like over the last 12 months, like it, just looking at the very top top of the of of films released, like, you know, top five, top four. Right. Like these are some of the best movies that have come out in the last few years. I mean, honestly, for me, that's it, really a remarkable set of films. That's what the top of, you know, especially nominated for best picture too, right. Like Judas and the Black Messiah, Nomadland, The Sound of Metal. Like these are some of the best movies that I've seen in the last few years. Um, and that's coming after a year in 2019 where, again, there were some of the best movies that I'd seen over the last several years. So it felt like we've talked about this many times, but like it really felt like a lot of people wrote off 2020 and it is 2021 now, et cetera. But like this film, you know, is one of the best ones in the last few years, in my opinion. And I think that we've seen, we've had a couple of those in the last few months over as sort of the Oscar season for movies has ramped up and gotten released as, you know, I, I think the top four from this year could definitely have you know a bar fight with the top four of last year um at the end of the day and, and i find that to be pretty remarkable because I, I think that the average movie in 2019 would probably outpunch the average movie in 2020 but overall at the very top it, it, there is this like class of movies that i've just found really spectacular of which this is one absolutely i think that anthony hopkins i mean the the performance is breathtaking i mean the, the performance is absolutely incredible i think what he's able to to capture through this sort of very um i don't know like genuine portrayal right like this idea that like he is he's playing it straight like this character it's told from his perspective which i think is what makes the movie so powerful is that like the film is very much told from his perspective 90 percent of the time and the fact that you are sort of experiencing what he's experiencing over the course of the movie um and i think that's what makes it feel so empathetic right like you described as empathetic i think a lot of people have, have described it that way and I think that there is a there is a really easy way to tell this story. And this is, I think, what you're alluding to, which is like from Olivia Coleman's character's perspective, like from his from his daughter Anne's perspective, where he looks like a, a you know, a, you know, a, a buffoon, essentially, just kind of this, you know, raving sort of old man. Right. Who's making no sense whatsoever. And it's not like there aren't portions of the movie where he isn't making sense, but you understand him not making sense because of the way that, that they construct the film around his point of view. And I think that's what 
you know, that sort of structure of the film makes it so much more powerful and empathetic towards that person and ultimately makes it a, a film worth taking seriously. Right. And, and I, and I mean that in a, you know, in a really, like, I guess like empathetic way, right? Like it, it's not guaranteed that a movie about someone, you know, slipping, like the, having their consciousness and their, you know, logic in quotation marks, um, slipping away from them that that's like not on paper and you know a fundamentally interesting movie to watch happen and and but the way that they do it the way they construct it really works and all the more so it helps to have the performances like you were talking about here you know from Anthony Hopkins from Olivia Coleman all the you know all the way down the cast list I think really strong performances really nuanced performances because you know they, they are giving the type of performances that we've talked about you know on in one-off occasions it feels like across several other movies maybe something like freaky or something like that where it feels like you're almost playing multiple you're you know a single actor or actress is playing multiple roles in the film well pretty much everyone except anthony hopkins is playing multiple roles in this film. i'm thinking of ending things was i, I did get uh, some vibes of that throughout uh, at certain points in the movie which is the constantly shifting nature sure. of things yeah no I, I i can definitely see what you're see what you're saying there and you're right like th this film part of it could because because it's taking the structure of, of showing anthony's point of view it, the fluidity of the scenes, I just found it like pretty, you know, I, I, I talked about Anthony Hopkins' performance being breathtaking, like the fluidity of it and the sort of just the constant motion and like kinetic energy of the of the film just pushing you forward and forward and forward. It, it arrived me, it reminded me a lot of something like Arrival, which is obviously, you know, very, very hallowed territory to start discussing a movie. And for me, because that's one of my, you know, top two, three movies of all time. And what reminded me of it is again that, that fluidity of story where it's unfolding a narrative that you, you know it, it starts with a very your your perspective starts very narrow right like you get the first scene you understand that he's having these difficulties with these caretakers and that his daughter who looks in on him every single day is about to move and it, this is a very stressful point in his life right um no, no matter where he is already with his mental health you know it, it's a very fragile point that he's at right now and i think the way the story unfolds after that, like, you know, pretty quickly that something else is going on. Um, or at least there's some weirdness happening with the way the film is being told. And I, and you get that in something like arrival. Um, I'm sure you could list a handful of other movies that also feel that way. And the way the, the narrative unfolds and the, and the film story unfolds is just so naturalistic where, you know, for everyone who watches this movie, there's going to be a point where you realize exactly what's going on and you feel like you're putting the pieces together that comes before the end and before the big reveal or whatever. Or, and whatnot. And I think that there's always something just like really satisfying and really rewarding about that, that narrative experience in a, in a film. You were going to say something. Yeah. Well, I was just going to, yeah, to, to your point, I think like, despite what we're saying, despite it being, you know, uh, putting you in this disjointed headspace of this person, there is, it is still very deliberate in the way it is constructed, yeah. right? There is a Absolutely. beginning, middle end. There is a narrative that is going on here and you can, you know, you can see there are moments when, the movie chooses to reveal certain things to you again, very deliberately that this moment has been chosen to reveal something to you yeah. um, in a way that I think it, it's so impressive to be able to, to tell a story, to tell it, you know, yeah. a, a fluid story while also, you know, make immersing you in the headspace of this guy who cannot put together a fluid story. Like he, he can't yeah. um, with the headspace that he's in. So it's, it's disappointing. Uh, you know, I, I feel like maybe that, um, you know, awards bodies and stuff are just kind of looking at Florian Zeller and being like, oh, well, this was, you know, uh, 
I've never uh, heard of this guy before. Frankly. Well, that and like yeah. this was a stage play adaptation, right? There's not right. much directing to do, but I don't. I mean, if you actually watch the movie, which again is not always a given in, in these award awards bodies, but if you actually watch <laughs> the movie, um, this is one you know one of the more impressive directing jobs that you will ever see for a stage play adaptation. Um, so he deserves to be talked about more you know, than some of the people who are nominated, um, in my opinion, uh, for best director. Yeah, I didn't even realize this either, though. And I was looking this film up before we started recording that, you know, at least three, I'm trying to tick them off the top of my head, at least three of these films nominated for best picture all debuted at Sundance last year, like the, this debuted at Sundance last year, which I didn't even realize. Um, Minari, of course, and Promising Young Woman, were the other two that debuted at Sundance last year. So a really strong showing from them. I mean, obviously, Sundance is full of you know, very good movies. We experienced that ourselves this year. Um, well, some good, some less good. But, uh, you know, there there is a cream of the crop coming out of Sundance. But I don't I wonder how common it is that three Sundance films get nominated for Best Picture in a single year. Uh, that's I think I mean, that's pretty impressive. And, you know, we, weird almost, although I guess it is ultimately just the awards play of it all that this film got held for as long as it did, because I think Sony probably made like a little bit of a mistake because um, they have the distribution for this film releasing it so late in the cycle. I mean, we said the same thing for Judas that even with the delayed Oscars this year by two plus months, it really feels like a lot of the conversation has already happened. Like coming out, you know, this, I think this film had a limited release starting maybe at the, the end of February, maybe beginning of March and then only went wide, like middle of March. Like it just, it just, even though that's still a month before the Oscars that in this, in this cycle, it, it just felt like it was a little bit too late. Um, for this movie, especially when there's not anything super compelling, like this is this isn't a film that's going to pop like Promising Young Woman might. Whereas, like if that film got released a month, like two a month and a half before the Oscars, at least, like everyone would be, would be talking about it at the very least. Yeah. Um, whereas this film is not one, um, I think for maybe obvious reasons, but because of the subject matter, is not one that's going to get a lot uh, of buzz around it in in that same way. Um, so I think that a little bit smarter of a release schedule might have done it some favors. Um, but ultimately maybe Sony was just trying to time it, trying to get into theaters where people can actually watch it in the theater, but that's neither here nor there. Maybe we can come back around to its Oscar chances, maybe towards the end of our discussion, but let's pivot back towards the acting. You mentioned that you were pretty impressed with the acting almost on, on all fronts, but I think we have to start with Anthony Hopkins who plays that lead role of Anthony appropriately, I suppose. Uh, Scott, why don't you give me a little more of your thoughts around his performance in particular? Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly impressive, right? He's 83 years old. Um, and, you know, this is his second straight year being nominated for an Academy Award. Um, you know, he's doing some of his uh, career best work um, here, you know, in the, the final stages of his career, mm -hmm. um, which is impressive. And yeah, the, you know, the one, one thing that uh, originally occurred to me, like immediately occurred to me when I saw that the character was named Anthony was that that was actually a really interesting choice uh, to sort of have this meta layer going on uh within the movie of you know him being at the age of this character right like i mean you know he's he's not playing himself in the sense that anthony hopkins himself is going through dementia at least not at this stage um but like you know four or five years down the line this is something that a, a lot of people at anthony hopkins age experience um and so there's and it also adds, like, again, an interesting layer layer of disorientation when you have people who are calling him by Anthony, 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 which, you know, is his name name in real life. It's like, oh, wow, like, what am I what exactly am I watching here? 
so that's a cool choice because in the play, that wasn't the name of the, the guy. His name was Andre. So that was clearly something that Florian Zeller decided to do for this movie. Um, now, whether, whether he, uh, picked Anthony Hopkins first and then changed the character, or whether he said Anthony and then was like, well, who's the best Anthony we could get? Uh, Anthony Hopkins. Um, I don't know, but either way, it really works. Uh, and yeah, you know, there, there's some, his performance is incredibly compelling, even when, you know, he is going, even, even when, he, you know, and there are a few moments where he sort of takes a turn for the rude, angry a little bit, like he makes some um, comments that, you know, are not the nicest. Um, but you, you're, you always feel for him because like you understand um, the, the position that he is in and why he might be lashing out at, in certain situations or why maybe he can't help himself from lashing out in um, certain situations. Um, and he always brings you back, you know, a few moments later w with whatever his, you know, other, the next emotion that he's feeling, right? The emotional range of this performance, I think, is the, is really the standout element of it because he's doing so much and, um, you know, despite uh, being all over the map in terms of his emotion, um, you're always, you're always feeling for him. You're always empathizing with him. Um, and yeah, I, I just think there's some really powerful moments. Like I love the scene when he first meets Imogen Poots, um, who comes, you know, to be interviewed, to be his caregiver kind of, and he's like, all of a sudden he just like brightens up and he's very lively and, um, you know, you get a sense of him, what he was like maybe 10, 20, 30 years before um, this point where he finds himself at now, um, which, again, takes on a new layer once things get revealed about Imogen Poots' character, but even just to begin with. Um, and then all of a sudden, right, like yeah, everything's going great, you know, she's laughing, blah, blah, blah. And then there's just like this moment where he, you know, makes a comment that uh, makes this jarring comment kind of that just pulls you out of the the moment all of a sudden and you realize this is how hard um, this lifestyle is, particularly for the people around, I mean, for him, of course, but also for the people around him, because, you know, here he is one minute, he's jovial, he's, you know, reminiscent of the person that, you know, Olivia Coleman, you know, knew and loved as her father. Um, and then, you know, within the drop of a hat, he can, um, he can turn really harsh um, and, you know, further down the road, he's, you know, disoriented, forgetting things, stuff like that. It's, it's, it's very hard. Um, and, you know, that's something that is portrayed in the other performances that we, you know, we'll get to, but I think Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. It's best actor this year is, you know, a, a really strong category, I think, um, particularly, you know, between him, between Riz Ahmed and between Chadwick Boseman, who is going to win, of course. Um, I think that, uh, those three are, are really, really stellar. And, uh, you know, it, it's nice to see because it's actually, it was been going around on Twitter the past couple of days. It's like graphic of the last 10, um, winners for best actor. And it's sad. It is sad. If you look at the last decade of best actor winners, it is, there are maybe, there's maybe one performance, maybe Casey Affleck, or maybe, um, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and Lincoln. Like, those are the only two that you might point to and be like, okay, this is, I, I'm okay with this. Like, I'm okay with this because these performances were actually really, really good. Um, and the rest of them are just like, really? This is the thing that won Best Actor. Um, so it's nice to see that, you know, the Academy, I think, is is spoiled for choice this year, at least with these three performances. And, you know, it, it, will take, it would take a miracle for Chadwick Boseman to not win. But if he doesn't win, 
then I think the people who would be right there to, to profit would be um, would be Riz Ahmed or Anthony Hopkins, right? And those are the the two, uh, you know, other best performances in this category. So, yeah, I have nothing bad to say about his performance. It's, uh, you know, maybe career best for somebody who's been doing it for 40, 50 years now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that was one of the things that I, I kind of wanted to say up top is that I'm not going to sit here and say I've watched even the majority of Anthony Hopkins, you know, performances in his career, but this feels like of the ones that I have seen, this feels like the his career high for me. I mean, I watched the two popes last year just to talk about more recent things. Thought he was good in that. Honestly, thought Jonathan Price was better. Um, and I was just really, really floored by this overall. And I mean, one of the things that just feels so amazing is that yes, he's not playing multiple characters in the same way that maybe some of these other performances are. But what he is doing is he's having to give the portrayal of an individual who, like you said, has this like really wide range of emotions and experiences to the point where, and I think this is something that has set a lot of people who are struggling with dementia and Alzheimer's that they, he seems like a different person at different time at different points in the movie, right? Like he acts a different way. And sometimes, you know, the scene you're describing, which I think, you know, is one is one of the most astounding parts of the performance. I think that was like one of the one of the scenes that I would point to for his performance is like this you know, five, six, seven minute scene with him and Imogen Poots and, uh, and Olivia Coleman, where he, he, he really just really runs the, like the full gamut of, it feels like one emotional range to the end of the emotional range to the other. And again, the fluidity kind of being like a common theme, I think throughout this film, it's like the fluidity of going from that one place and then so quickly trans transitioning to the other end of that spectrum. I just, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how many takes they needed to get that, but it's pretty, imp I mean, it's just so impressive to me. And at the same time, again, like a really tough, it's a tough watch for that reason, because you see that range. And then if, you, you know, if you have a loved one in your life who has, a, is it, who has gone through the same experiences or is struggling with dementia and Alzheimer's, like, like, I recognize that, right? Like I've seen that in some of my experiences and it's, it, it it feels real like it feels like a real like a real portrayal but not in like a mean way right like not in a way that like oh can you believe how you know i don't know like schizophrenic this person's mood is right like can you believe it and i think instead it's like wow like look at the struggle this person's going through in their like interpersonal interactions that they're having it, it feels just again just some intangible quality almost to the film i mean i think some some of it we could point to and say why it comes off as empathetic, but then I think also just has this extra intangible quality to the performance and end of the film as a whole that really allows you to empathize with the performance that Anthony Hopkins is giving. And I don't know, I could talk more about that performance probably, but I just feel like I'd be repeating what you said. And I don't know if I have much more of value to add other than to say, it feels crazy to me that Anthony Hopkins is, is probably not going to win <laughs> best actor. But I also am saying that about Riz Ahmed in the same year. Um, yeah. So it's uh it's wild also I'll, I'll take a little bit of exception to what you're saying in the last 10 years leonardo dicaprio for the revenant i'm not gonna not for that movie sorry not for that movie i mean in that year though for me relative to what, what else was nominated what else was nominated matt damon in the martian eddie redmayne we'll in the danish girl brian we'll cranston see. for trumbo i i'm not even talking about necessarily what was nominated i sure. mean you know most of the time the best performance isn't even nominated. jake gyllenhaal and nightcrawler there you go that's one that wasn't even nominated not that that's, year that's not that year though yeah not that year no i'm not saying yeah. that, that year i'm just saying that's an example of like a year where almost everyone would point to that as like oh this was the best acting performance didn't get nominated so 
the, the point is, I there you know the best performances don't always get nominated, and uh, when you look at the winners, it's 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 a it's pretty rough. Like and, also, did you, against the Le- Revenant? did you see the Revenant? Did you see the? I think against Leonardo DiCaprio as an actor. No, uh, I haven't seen the Revenant, but um, yeah. you know I, I get the vibe. But nothing sure. against Leonardo DiCaprio as an actor. I just mean for that to be the movie that he won for, I think sure, sure. a lot of people would would take exception to that. I mean, personally, I think he should have won for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood just last year. So sure, um, I don't disagree with that, and I think he could have easily won for Wolf of Wall Street too. But Matthew McConaughey, I guess, yeah, I, mean, I guess he was pretty good that year. I don't know. I didn't see Dallas. He Dallas was Dallas. good, but I mean, you'd probably yeah. say I mean DiCaprio was was probably better, honestly. Yeah, I, I mean, she would tell Edgy Four was also nominated that year. I think for McConaughey gives a better performance in in um, in Interstellar, for being quite honest. But uh, but yeah, Edgy Four would have been a great choice as well. But yeah. Sure. Point is, uh, it's been a rough decade for that category. So maybe yeah. this is a good sign. Maybe we're starting off the you know this um, next ten years on, on a high note with uh, mm-hmm. with one of these three people winning. Um, yeah, and, and, I, and I I think it's interesting because I mean this year feels like again just talking about in, in terms of nominee, which doesn't always get the you know isn't always the people that we would put forth in the category for sure. Like no no doubt about that. But you know, people nominate. It just like feels like this year is like four times better than like most other years not that there aren't people that i would still take over the people who did one i mean last year i would have taken probably anyone else in the category over joaquin phoenix um the year before i mean i think bradley cooper should have won but i didn't i also didn't see willem dafoe at at eternity's gate and whatnot but i think the point is is that like if it doesn't really feel like best actor has always been a category that we've looked at among the nominees and been like hey wow this is a banger of a category this year, like it feels like oftentimes we're saying that about the other side of the coin, right? About the the best actress or the best supporting actress categories. And so it, it's definitely a change this year to feel like, you know, there's actually something to discuss, even even if the discussion feels like it ended as soon as the as soon as the year started almost in terms of you know award season with with Chadwick Boseman. But that being said, Anthony Hopkins is spectacular in this. I, you know, he's like 82 or 83 or something like that. And you know, if he still got performances like this in the tank, then keep acting, Anthony. Keep acting. But we'll go further down the cast list now to Olivia Coleman, who plays his daughter Anne, as well as you know anyone else in the supporting cast you might want to mention. Um, Scott, where where do you want to go to first? Um, yeah, I mean Olivia Coleman obviously is is become a powerhouse actress at this point. Again, another performance like is this really a supporting performance? I don't know. I think you could make it make the case for this as a lead. But uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like she's she's gonna win either way. But um, yeah, but yeah, she's she's excellent in the movie. And you know, we're talking about how the movie is empathetic towards the, you know the the main character towards Anthony. I think it's also very empathetic towards the character of the daughter. Um, and you know how hard it is for a loved one to experience you know this in somebody they love and their parent and their their father. Um, I think it uh, it does a great job of, you know, letting her be frustrated and, you know, angry and stuff about what she what is going on in her father's life and with his state of mind without ever judging her for doing that. Right. Because, you know, we would feel the same way. Like it's it's it is frustrating. Like, um, you know, you you can't you just can't help yourself um, sometimes. Now, that doesn't mean that you should let your frustration and anger get the better of you. which is kind of the case with another character, right? Um, again, not say too much, but um, but so I, I think that it, it's a you know exquisite portrayal of that side of 
this whole situation too. E even though, again, it's being we're we're seeing the movie from Anthony's perspective. I think um, this turns out to be a very rich character as well. And Olivia Coleman also shows has a lot of emotions. You know, uh, you know, shows a lot of emotional range here. See, I, I I think the moment where she you know drops the cup and leans down to you know clean it up and then just breaks down um, is is pretty affecting. And um, you know there. There are other moments you could point to as well when, um, you know, just some like desperation of trying not to feel, try, trying to, you know, avoid this person that she loves slipping away for good. Yeah, I think I think that your point around this film being empathetic to both the father and Anthony, but also the daughter and Anne is is spot on for me, too, because it's one of those things where, again, when you, when you choose the construct, you know, one way or the other, this film goes the point of view of the father you know, again, we talked about how the film maybe could have taken the easy way out and, and given the POV exclusively of the daughter. But I think one thing that this film could have slipped taking the perspective of the father is losing that sort of empathic moments or or feelings towards Anne. And I find it, again, just something that, that felt very relatable in my personal experiences um, to to look at her and see the frustration um, with what you know what her father is doing a lot of the time or how she's how he's behaving or treating you know the caretakers who come into the house but never in like a obviously never in a mean-spirited way right and of course you have there is this other character that you're alluding to that you know maybe we'll get to in a second but like never in a mean-spirited way and even in all that frustration right like it's it's coming from a place of love and you can see that and i think that that's such like a real thing right where you can just be so frustrated but at the same time, like at the end of the day, when you're dropping that coffee cup and you're picking it up, like, you know, that there's just nothing that he can do about it, right? Like, it's just, he can't help it. Like what he's doing, he can't help it. If he could, he wouldn't be doing it. Right. And I, I think that is such a important reminder because it, it, it is. Yeah. I was going to say the metaphor of the coffee cup, right? Maybe it's a little bit obvious, but you know, you can't put it back together. Yeah. And I, and I think that the frustration and the the sadness and the love that comes from Coleman's performance is you know very special a, as well and you know if I watched this uh, you know a month or two ago I'd just be saying like well I feel like Olivia Coleman should be the favorite to win you know to win the award it doesn't really seem like she is the favorite at this point um although I don't really mind who is Yoo the favorite though, I mean Yujun yeah. Yu is probably the favorite yeah, we'll talk about that at later point, yeah, at yeah. this point she's probably the favorite but um, we can talk about that later. I, I just think that it, it is just really another really strongly empathetic performance towards like the plight of the caregiver, right? Like to see this, to see the frustration, to see the love. And I think one of the parts of the performances that, you know, we haven't really touched on yet that really strikes me. And maybe this is just part of the larger narrative more than it is the performance, but I felt it in the performance as well is that like the, the greatest flash points of like anger and frustration are having are, are like coming when you're fighting the battle like outside of the war right like if the war is like trying to help your father maintain you know grip on his sanity and live you know the best life that he can live for as long as he can live it and then like the toughest battle is coming from you know your support system right like the people who should be supporting you yeah. and you're, you're having to fight them at like on like every little thing too whenever something happens like again like the frustration is understandable like it's so understandable but it feels like the anger comes from in this sort of like, I don't want to say rage, but like the anger for this character, like the, the empathic anger you feel for her comes from when, you know, people are just letting her down or like outside of her father. And that, and again, like that's something that I feel like is understandable and feels like, again, very relatable to this point where like, you know, you, 
if you're a like if you're the daughter of someone you know experiencing Alzheimer's, like obviously no one's going to love you know in this case like your father as much as you love him and as much as you want to care for him and things like that. But it's like another thing, right? When you see someone who's like actively trying to work against that and mistreating him, and I just found that to be again one of the many parts of this film that I found to be really you know reflective and you know emotionally gripping. Um, and overwhelming and even in some stages and just uh, upsetting. Like, I don't know, there's like so many ways you could describe it probably, but I, I was just, again, really astounded by the sort of pair of main performances in this film, yeah. including Olivia Coleman, but anyone else from the cast you want to mention before we move on? I'm always a fan of Imogen Poots's work. I think yeah. she's, uh, who does... is she really in this movie, Scott? Who's her, what's her real character? Is she really Lucy? Like who, who is she? Yes. I think she's really Lucy. Um, yeah. Well, and this is one of the, uh, we're into spoiler territory now, but yeah. this is one of the strongest moments of, of like, I'm talking about earlier, these movie, the movie has these very deliberate points of revealing things to you. Mm-hmm. When he has this dream or, you know, vision, basically, and he has finally realized that his daughter, that Lucy is, is, it a memory? is dead. Um, yeah, no, he sees her, he sees Imogen Poots, right, on the hospital bed all um, cut up after she's had this accident that obviously resulted in her death. Yeah. And then the next scene is the one where Laura arrives um, to start as his caretaker. And Laura is now played by Olivia Williams, right? Yeah. It's not Imogen Poots anymore because he's come to terms with it, right? He's realized that, um, you know, his daughter is gone. And yeah. that's just Maybe that's a hard moment. Yeah, that's a really hard moment when. You know, she walks, she just walks into the kitchen there and you see that it's not not who he was, not not Imogen Poots anymore. Um, And that, again, a very deliberate choice that I think works really well. Um, But she's really good. She, you know, she's very sort of she lends a real bubbliness and liveliness, I think, to the proceedings when she's on screen as this Lucy character, Um, you know, Lucy slash Laura character um, that I think is what makes it devastating even more devastating when the revelation comes because you see that this person was probably very full of life or at least that is how he remembers her right that is how he pictures her as very full of life and was obviously taken that life was taken away from her when she was very young so um yeah i think imogen poots is very very talented and um, doesn't get enough roles the last two movies that we've watched her and we've reviewed her very highly. Um, so I, I, you know, I hope that she will continue to work and um, only get, get bigger roles because, you know, the list of young actresses who are very talented and deserve more roles is not a short list, but her name certainly belongs on it in my opinion. Um, and hopefully when she does get that big role, it will be, because they decided to bring roadies back, even though it got canceled like four years ago and have a season two. So Cameron Crowe, if you're listening, I want this. She's in. I know this much is true. So if ever you wanted another okay. uh, absolute gauntlet of a series to watch along with the yeah, father, no, I'm not this sure. makes for a great double feature. <laughs> and again, one of my absolute uh, favorite actors, uh, you know, starring in that as well. But uh, yeah. I don't know that. I think it says a lot about that subject matter that I, I haven't gotten around to that one. Yeah, probably. I, I still, every single time I'm deciding whether to watch a new show or not, it, it's on the list. And I'm like, maybe not. <laughs> maybe next yeah. time. Um, maybe next time. Well, it's only six episodes. It wouldn't take that long. But yeah, and I haven't quite been in the mood yet. <laughs> TBD if I ever am. But anyway, uh, yeah, Imogen Poot's good. Mark Gaddis, good. Olivia Williams, good. All the, Rufus Sewell, I think, is maybe the other character to talk about. Uh, I think that 
performance is good. And he's the character, you know, since we are talking spoilers now, he is the character that we've both been alluding to. I think around people, you know, you talked about how yeah. he doesn't keep his anger in check, you know, boiling over. I was talking about who's the person who it feels like Olivia Coleman's Anne is, you know, having to fight uh, a tougher battle with. And it feels like outside of, you know, obviously where she wants to be spending her emotional energy, let alone her time. And I think that it's, um, again, like in a in a really unfortunate or unhappy way, like it feels like another performance that you can understand. Maybe empathy is like too going going a step too far, but you can like see the frustration and see the bad decisions that he's making in terms of how he's dealing with that frustration and that anger. And it just leaves you super upset. Like it did for me at least. Like it left me pretty upset to see it, even though I can I can connect the dots and get to the get to the end point. But to me it was like, man, wow, that's really yeah. tough. Well it's what you're talking about, right? It's the difficult aspect of having to deal with somebody in their position in Anthony's position when you don't have the sort of personal feelings for them that, Mm -hmm. you know, his daughter does, right. Because she's grown up, she's known, you know, what he was like for her entire life. Um, You know, this has only come up in the last year or two, but when you don't have, um, you know, that sort of personal connection to the person who is experiencing this dementia, your patience is even thinner. Um, and yeah, no, obviously what he ends up doing is completely reprehensible, but you're right that there is, you know, a note of, there are moments you can understand like his, his frustration again. And, um, I think there's a lot of nuance to the performance and, you know, just when he's like sitting on the couch, when they're both sitting on the couch and he's just not even paying attention to Anthony Hopkins, right? He's like, he's reading his newspaper and you can see right there, like what his attitude is towards this whole situation, really. Um, hmm. And I think that just little moments like that are, are really good in establishing a character who, you know, has minimal screen time. Yeah, for sure. And I think something that is a broader topic that I want, that we, it feels like we've already been talking about because we've talked about spoilers. Now we've talked about some of the setup for this. It's just like the overall construction of the film from Anthony Hopkins perspective. Uh, Anthony's perspective as a character and how it takes you through these sort of twists and turns of in some instances showing you the same scene multiple times um, but just from like a slightly different like through a slightly different lens and I just wanted to get I, I have a I have a suspicion that I know your answer to this question but I wanted to get your thoughts on like how effective that construction is not like not just the fluidity of how things flow from scene to scene and the and the story sort of develops although I think that is a part of it which is like how well sort of that sort of narrative unspooling that I was talking about earlier worked for you. Cause again, that's one of the things that I point to and be like, this is why like this was that, that notion and that sort of plot unraveling, like I was talking about is what takes this movie for me from just being great to like, okay, this is something that's really, really amazing and how it tells the story. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree. I think, um, you know, it, it really elevates the movie again in a way that I don't see how you could do this on a stage. Uh, like we were saying earlier, I, I think this this element would be lost in um, a stage adaptation, which is, you know, a, a big element as to why this movie is so successful. So, um, yeah, maybe it, it probably works better as a film, in my opinion. But, you know, there's almost uh, of course, I'm going to say this, but there's almost a little women like uh way that uh equality to the way that this film is constructed um you know again in in that way that we're sort of jumping back and forth in time at certain moments but he's choosing to like florian zeller is clearly choosing um moments to link the past and present like together um 
And, uh, you know, I, th I think that's, uh, you know, a very interesting way to construct this movie. And, you know, again, puts you in that headspace. And even when, you know, like things are constantly changing, I don't know, you know, if what I'm looking at is real or not, there are still these very real moments when something changes. Um, and, you know, again, it, it hits you right in the field. Like one that one that got me is um, the when they're at the dinner table. Right. And like he he has this. A moment where he like sees them talking about him uh, and they don't realize he's really standing there um and you know then there's this whole dinner scene and there's you know some conversation between uh, him olivia coleman and uh and rufus sewell and then he gets up to go into the kitchen to get more food and when he comes back out he encounters the exact same conversation happening and it's like it's basically gone in a loop and you're like, when did this scene start? When did it end? But it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's really effective. Um, and, you know, kind of just puts you again in the, that difficult headspace of um, seeing people that, you know, you care about talking about you in this way uh, um, and knowing that there's probably some truth to what they're saying about the frustrating um, position that you are in but also knowing that there's nothing you can do, right? No matter how hard you can try to, you know, overcome what what you're experiencing, um, you know, that dementia is not really something that you could cure. Um, and it's it's going to be there, and um, you're you're constantly um, going to be experiencing these these changes. So yeah, I don't I, the construction of the film. I don't really have anything. Um, bad to say about it i think it, it again leads to some very powerful moments of linking certain things together um revealing you know certain things about what we've seen before like you know again revealing why olivia coleman and her husband divorced um mm -hmm. which is something that we hear about in the first scene of the movie but we don't actually you know understand the reason until later when um you know when we see that with that you know he straight up hits anthony hopkins multiple times in the face um and um and and you know ha having that helps you understand her character more of like hey look you know she's she's lost her relationship because of um in, in a way because of her father's condition although you know again mm -hmm. it's not his fault but um in so, on some level it is right if it wasn't for his condition then this wouldn't have happened um but it's out of his control um but then like again the dueling like you, you see that she obviously cares about her father and um you know has took his side in this whole thing um but also now there's the the dueling side of it that she has this other man now that is in paris and um she's she's faced with um the the choice again of do i lose my relationship uh for my father or at a certain point do i have to let him go right do i have to put him in a home basically um and do something for myself and it's not an easy choice to make um and again even though she chooses right i'm going to go to paris i'm going to be with this uh man and i'm going yeah, and, she can't put her know, life on hold forever right and, and yeah again in a different movie we might they might portray her as like oh you know i can't believe she did this like she's a terrible person for abandoning her father like this at the end of his life but because the movie again is so empathetic to her position as well i don't you know i don't feel like she's being judged for making that decision of doing something for herself in the end and going to paris and you know having to have anthony put in a home 
um, put in a, you know, nursing facility. Um, you know, again, I don't feel like the movie judges her for that, or, or at the very least, you know, it wants you to have some conversation about whether or not she has done the right thing. Yeah, and I think the reality of those sorts of decisions, this is editorializing completely, it's just that, like, you know, there's there isn't necessarily, you know, one right or wrong answer, and there's a lot, I think there's lots of ways to approaching whether or not it is like the right answer, right? There's even different ways to interpret it. But overall, I think talking about the narrative, just to talk about something that we haven't talked about yet, because I, I agree with you what you're saying there around um, the way some scenes like loop, essentially, I think is really powerful. And that's like the most disconcerting part at first of the film. But then when you realize what it's doing, right, it really, the wheels turn and that, again, kind of unspools the whole plot for it all. But one of the things that I that I find interesting, although ultimately I don't know if it matters that much what the answer to the question is, is like, you know, what exactly are you seeing on screen, right? Like ultimately, like you get to the last 20, 30 minutes of the movie and, you know, now you are in the, the present in quotation marks. Like he's in the assisted living facility of some sort, you know, memory care facility, whatever, whatever it might be. You know, he's receiving this care, you know, in this facility. And, you know, at this point, you've put all the pieces like you've put all the pieces together. You understand what's going on. You're having these conversations between you know, Anthony and, you know, his nurses, which I think are uh, like, what is it? Catherine and Bill, like Bill or something like that. I can't remember it. Yeah. It's, names of yeah Mark Madison, Olivia Williams again. Yeah, exactly. Um, and what I really appreciate, I, I feel like about that is, you know, the, there is this moment where you, you start to wonder, right? Like, all right, what did I just witness? Did like a lot of time pass during this film or am I actually experiencing his like day-to-day -day experience? But like, again, like he's, He's his battle with dementia has gotten to a certain point where he's actually just sort of like remembering he's he's sort of like sitting and walking around this facility that he's in that you don't really realize that he's in until the end of the movie, but he's just yeah. experiencing all these things around him. And again, like I don't think that it ultimately matters what the answer to that question is, but I think that in terms of like narrative cohesion, which is something that I like to think a lot about in this type of movie in particular, I find that to be an interesting question that I don't know. I certainly don't have an answer to after the first watch, but you know, you say that there's no way you'll ever watch this movie again. I would have said that, that that I felt that way, you know, going into the movie. Like, I'm probably never, I'm gonna probably gonna watch this one time and like never touch this film again. But like, I love this movie. I'm actually really intrigued to go back and watch this again, even though it is emotionally challenging. And I think it just speaks to the quality of, it, at least like th this film speaks to me not only in like a thematic or an, or a subject matter way in terms of how I feel emotionally with it, but also just it's again it's storytelling nature. I think that one of the what makes the film so rewatchable is the sort of narrative. Yeah, I mean that that is the case for a rewatch. Um, that you know you would you would be able to to put all the pieces together. But you know, I, I think I, I saw enough on this first watch sure, to absolutely. know that um, everything does fit together. Again, this is not just disorienting details for the sake of oh, disorienting yeah. you. It is you know these are these are actual parts of his memory as and you know clues and stuff like that and yeah it, the puzzle does all fit together in the end and you understand like oh you know she's talking about she's going to paris in the first scene but then later it's like oh i don't paris what are you talking about like I, i've never been to paris i'm not going to paris but it's because that hasn't happened yet right this is the past that yeah. you know all, all of these things start to lock into place the more that we see in the movie um and yeah. i have no doubt that if i were to rewatch it um, that I would find that it, you know, more or less all fits together. Yeah. And I feel like the reason why I think we could all, I mean, we, we can all, you and I can say that confidently is because it, it feels to me like, again, there's nothing like, like when you say, when I said like, oh, this one's going to disorient you. Like, I don't think that like the average viewer would, would think about what this one actually does to them. 
right? That's actually disorienting. I think that it's almost like uncanny valley-esque, right? Like just some, something feels off. It's like, you know, you made the, the comparison to I'm thinking of anything earlier, which I think feels similarly for like up to a certain point in the movie. And then obviously it's just like, you know, regardless yeah, of what you think it, in the movie, it, like it gets like crazy at the end of it, right? Like it, it's so far it, out there. It's not the like end. the earth is sliding into the sun or anything dramatic, right? Like that, right? It's, it's like yeah. these small little details that are, yeah. are just not, something is not quite right. Somebody does not look like they used to. Somebody's, the color of their shirt is changing or yeah. the, or the you know, decoration the in, the, in the house. Exactly. The yeah. painting is missing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th- things like that. Something is just slightly off. Um, yeah. And so for that respect, like that's why you feel like, okay, yeah, no, the, we, like we know, even if we don't know, right. Like we know the pieces fit together and part, and this is just a, like, this is totally a me thing. It's like why I love rewatching movies like arrival, things like that is just to like actually see again, like how that story and that narrative develops over time and, and unravels itself in such a, clever way to for lack of a better way to put it i just love that about certain films and and this film really really uh scratched that itch i guess inside of me so that's one of the things that i just really loved all right i mean my last topic on the list here was just to talk about sort of its portrayal of dimension but i think i think we've sprinkled that pretty much through throughout in terms of how empathetic it is towards that and you know it's choosing at least at least from films that i've watched and am familiar with chooses a different tact in, in the way that it goes about its storytelling that i don't know if there's really much more to say so why don't we enter a wrap up here and talk about your favorite scene or moment from the father? Yeah. I mean, we haven't really talked maybe about the very ending, but I think it's, yeah. uh, it's also really powerful, right? When he really just has a complete breakdown now that he's in this nursing home and he's he realizes that come back to yeah. reality in some sense. But again, we don't know how long that's going to last, right? Like 10 minutes after the movie ends, he could be totally back in this other place. And that's, I think what makes it so, so crushing Um, but he has this whole breakdown and you know olivia williams is there as the nurse with him and um is trying to comfort him in this moment it this ending you know comparing this to other 2020 movies very reminiscent of the sound of metal ending right where they are kind of just sitting there together like trying to be calm and like we fade out to the trees and and i mean that's you know it's it's almost like he is trying to put himself in the same headspace that, or she is trying to get him to be in the same headspace that Ruben is also trying to put himself in, in that last scene of sound of metal when he takes out the, um, the implants. But um, yeah. So, so I think that's a a really like, you know, again, very sad. Like the, this whole movie is very sad. There's really not much silver lining uh, in the end. Um, It's like, it's like a double whammy of like emotional wave. It's like a, it's like a it's like a interstellar wave size that hits yeah. you right when when you know you know like you've known this for a good deal of time at this point in the movie you know exactly where or you've gotten the sense right of where anthony is at and then to actually see it and then to have him also see it right because that's like it's 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 through that mechanism that you're able to see it as well as, as the viewer here in the, in this film and have him sort of like just sort of completely let go of this sort of like helpless cry like he just like sort of uncontrollably yeah. sobbing in this very helpless way. I mean, that's yeah. But instead of ending on that specifically, right. They, they take another two minutes to yeah, do this breeze. sort of, you yeah. know, right. It lets you sit with what you've just seen. Like it, it kind of like, you know, fade again, fades out. You're like, they're in the, in nature and you're really just like processing everything mm-hmm. that you've just been through, which feels right because it is such a um, taxing emotional journey, but again, in a good way. So I, I think that is, one of the scenes that we haven't talked about yet, you know, in addition to some of the others that we've mentioned that are definitely among my favorites too. Yeah. The one that I would throw out, we have already mentioned, so we don't have to spend as much time talking about it, but it is that scene where um, he, it's sort of early on, he meets Imogen Poots as like the caretaker character 
Laura for the first time is having this sort of introduction to him before she starts full time the next day. And I think that that scene, again, sort of the, the range of performance that you get, the empathy directed towards it, and then also the empathy directed towards this conversation that happens after between Anne, Olivia Coleman's character, and, you know, Laura, the Imogen Poots character in this case. I just found it to be sort of, it, it sort of captures everything about the movie, I think, that works in terms of its portrayal of dementia and, you know, the people who have to, who have to care for people with dementia. I, again, really, really striking moments. All right, Scott, yeah. out of 10, what are you giving the father? 9.5. This movie is really, really excellent. One of the best of 2020, if you want to consider it uh, 2020 or, you know, One of the best of 2021, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, we will we will revisit where we consider it, I guess, at the end of the year. But um, yeah. I have this right now as my third best um, third best movie of 2020. And also, uh, you know, third best best picture nomination or nominee when you factor in that Judas and the Black Messiah is nominated for best picture, which we are counting as a 2021 film. But um, yeah, no, I think uh, this yeah, going back to what you were saying earlier about how, yeah, some of the best films of the last you know few years or whatever, I mean, I expect to see that in every single year. Right. I, I expect that in any given year nowadays with as many movies as we watch, we're going to see three or four movies that will, you know, become best of the decade, best of all time, whatever for us. At least and in the conversation. Yeah. It took long. It took us longer to get there in 2020, but yeah. now between, you know, between Nomadland, between Possessor, between this movie and, you know, if you want to count Judas and the Black Messiah as well, we've gotten there. Um, and I, I definitely think this movie is in that same conversation as those. Yeah, look, not not too dissimilar take for me. I'm giving it a, a 10. I am going to go ahead and pull the trigger, give it a 10. Um, I, I I can't say a single thing. I, like, I'm sure someone could tell me that there's something wrong with this movie, but I just can't imagine. I just can't figure out what it is on my own. So someone's just going to have to enlighten me about why this movie's not a 10. Um, but overall, I think that, look, I'm on the same page as you in terms of this. This is number three for me right now. Although I might, I could flex this up to two. I'm not sure. Uh, but this is, this is one of the best movies I've seen since the start of the pandemic. Um, I think I probably right now give the edge to Judas as like the number one spot if, for the Oscar race, but two and three between this and Sound of Metal are, are a toss up for me. And Nomad landed fourth just sounds like absolutely ridiculous, but like it's just such an incredible. It is absolutely ridiculous. It's such, such an incredible top four. I don't think that there's that much space between Nomad Land and these other three movies, um, to be honest, no matter which order you Shouldn't put them in. Shouldn't be any space at all. <laughs> well, no, no. There should be space, but with Nomad Land. You would flip yeah. it the other direction, I think. Yeah. Um, but no, th this film is magnificent i think this and judas sound of metal nomad land look like i said i think they could get into a, a good a good bar fight with um marriage story 1917 parasite and once upon a time in hollywood from last year it'd be quite the showdown i think you're um, just forgetting something there it probably like there was a 2019 movie you might have left out but I, I can't i'm talking about the five that. star movies the movies that i gave five stars from from 20 from 2020 or 2019 in the oscar race but uh little women is a very good film also no no doubt about that it still would would beat the uh, other films in the category outside of the four that i would just mentioned okay condescending is not it's not look good on you it's not condescending <laughs> no i'm kidding i'm kidding <laughs> it's not condescending at all i i, I rewatched that movie on new year's and i loved it it's very no, nice. Uh, not good enough. Again, you have to think it's one of the greatest movies of all time. Yeah. No one loves this movie as much as you do, Scott. It's okay. Maybe not even Greta Gerwig, for being honest. Honestly, she's probably tired of, of you reviewing it on Letterboxd. She's really tired of opening Letterboxd and seeing you reviewed it again. Um, 
Greta, drop the burner, drop your letterbox burner. Just tell us where, where we can follow you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, 9.5 for Scott, 10 for me. That should do it for our discussion of the father. Uh, when we come back, we will be talking about uh, sort of our last awards roundup, I think, before uh, before the big day. And uh, I think two weeks from now, actually. So we will have a week where Scott maybe doesn't talk about the Oscars. Although maybe next week we'll do it. take the second half and just talk about our final predictions. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe we'll do something like that. Who knows? But we'll be talking about that. And as well as Sam Mendez is speaking of 1917 just a moment ago. Sam Mendez's next film. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It's Scott. First, as I mentioned before the break, we're talking about uh, another awards update here. We had the Directors Guild Awards last night as the time of recording and the BAFTAs earlier today. So, Scott, why don't you update us? Yeah, so the Directors Guild Awards obviously are what they sound like. This is, uh, you know, the group of directors who make up the the guild um, voting for outstanding achievements in directing in uh, 2020. And they gave their top prize, unsurprisingly, to Chloe Zhao for Nomadland, uh, you know, who has been the perennial winner um, throughout um, award season. You know, nothing has really stood in her way. in the way that, you know, some of the we're, we're going to talk in just a minute about how, you know, Chadwick Boseman seemed to have best actor on lock. And I still think he does. But even he lost out in one of the bigger awards shows, uh, the BAFTAs here um, that happened just today, I believe. But uh, or yesterday, maybe. But um, today, but Chloe, Chloe Zhao, yeah, has been uh, unfettered throughout um, award season. And look, I think it was the best directing job of last year. So I, I certainly can't complain about that. Also, I believe there was a best uh, first feature uh, mm-hmm. award that went to Emerald Fennell for uh, Promising Young Woman, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, from, the, from the DGAs? Yeah. Yeah, because I think I think Darius Martyr won the equivalent of that for the BAFTA. No, no Dar- Darius Martyr won at the DGAs. That's right. I, I, okay. I uh, Emerald Fennell won uh, the BAFTAs. Yeah, she's she won. Emerald Emerald Fennell won for best British film at the BAFTAs. Yeah, so the BAFTAs are basically the British version of the Oscars. Um, Yeah, and I'm not exactly sure historically what the correlation is like between the BAFTAs and the Oscars, but I imagine you know there's a fair amount of of correlation. But there are you know there were a couple of areas where they went where they diverged from what we expect to see at the the Oscars. you know, I already mentioned one of them, which is that Chadwick Boseman did not win for Best Actor, and Best Actor actually went to Anthony Hopkins for The Father, uh, which we just reviewed. So, um, you know, maybe the British bias, uh, you know, steeping in a little bit there with Anthony Hopkins being British, um, I don't know. But uh, again, as we mentioned, it's a, it's a tremendous performance. So um, I have I have no qualms with him winning, even though I don't think ultimately it's going to um, have an effect on you know, again, Chadwick Boseman winning the Oscar. The other area is in Best Actress, right, which is a category that we we still feel like is a little bit up in the air. Um, maybe, uh, you know, that that things were trending upward for Viola Davis um, in, in recent weeks uh, for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Maybe she will probably still go in as the slight favorite, I would say. Um, she wasn't but, nominated at the BAFTAs, but yeah. Well, yeah, there you go. Um, but it went to Frances McDormand, uh, again, one of 
you know, multiple people who I feel like does still have a chance to win the Oscar that is, that is nominated there. Um, honestly, you look at that field, I think Vanessa Kirby is the only person that I would look at and say, I think she's out of it um, for the Oscar Best Actress field. I think everybody else is, is in the hunt. But um, yeah, but Frances McDormand winning there. Uh, Nomadland winning on the evening once again um, for Best Picture and Best Director for Chloe Zhao. Um, in the supporting categories, Daniel Kaluuya, another guy who since the Golden Globes has just sort of steamrolled through uh, the Best Supporting Actor category. Highly expect him to win at the Oscars as well for his performance of Judas and the Black Messiah. And then now maybe we're starting to see a little bit of clarity on Best Supporting Actress. Again, I still think there's there's some ambiguity and room for you know upset, quote unquote upsets there. Um, but Yunya Jung did win once again as she did um, at the SAG Awards for um, for Best Supporting Actor for her performance in Minari. So, you know, in terms of what Vegas is going to say going into the Oscars, I imagine she'll be the favorite, but um, probably not by, um, you know, the odds of that you will see in some of the other categories. Yeah, and to note here, Olivia Coleman not nominated for Supporting Actress uh, at, the, at the BAFTAs. Which is surprising. Again, you think Olivia Coleman, like a British actress right now, like, I mean, she's probably at the top of the list. And again, the father is getting recognized for Anthony Hopkins' performance. So a little strange that she um, got left out there. But, you know, these awards make no sense most of the time. Yeah, the Best Supporting Actress, too. It's like, you know, it had some, I mean, Rocks, I feel like, is the British film that everyone talks about that, like, no one has seen in the US, I feel like. And it had a nominee here. And there's some other films that I actually just frankly haven't even heard of. In fact, one of them doesn't even have a Wikipedia page that I'm looking at right now. Um, so it what's it called? It's called County Lines. Um, like, yeah, I mean, I look at it. if it doesn't have a Wikipedia page, I doubt we've heard of it. <laughs> um, it's like pretty crazy. Um, but there's just like a lot of random films here and there. So it, it does, I think it, it basically it gives those sort of, I think, nods towards, you know, Films that, I mean, probably no one in, even in the Academy has even heard of, uh, let alone watched. And so I think that it maybe, you know, you do have your like favorites still in the category here that win the awards for the most part. But then you have further down the nominee list. Yeah, I think you have this recognition of, you know, specifically, you know, the Br the British bias, maybe, if you will. Well, the bias is probably too negative of a word for that. But um, acknowledging that that talent and that, and that production there that, you know, it's not going to get recognized outside of the UK. Yeah, uh, interestingly enough, uh, Tony Heald, who is a friend of ours that is from yeah. England, he was pointing out on Twitter that apparently um, uh, Nomadland has not actually been released in the UK. Or he, he basically he was making the comment that or the well, father, should, yeah, shouldn't the movie that wins Best Picture at the Baftas have actually been released so far in the UK? Uh, but I don't think that Nomadland has reached uh, across the pond yet, so which is, is strange. But, um, you know, the, it didn't stop it from winning um, Best Film, which, you know, would suggest that um, nothing is going to stop it really at this point um, from taking home the Best Picture Oscar. And that's a wonderful thing, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, just to potentially say, hold on a second, 1917 won last year at the BAFTAs. 1917, frankly, had won everything up to up to this point last season in terms of best picture ex with the exception of the ensemble from the sag which parasite did win but 1917 wasn't nominated for i think again for last week for no man we... wasn't nominated either yeah exactly right so i i just want you know i wonder right like is it 
Is it is yeah. it completely sewn up? I think like I agree. I think it mm-hmm. is, but I think you could just on paper look at last season and say, well, is it that different? Maybe something. I don't know what it, I don't even know what I'd point to because. I think you'd probably have to point to like the trial of Chicago seven and be like, ah. yeah, that's the thing. Cause parasite had a couple of things. Number one, it just started like trending upwards, like right at, as the time the Oscars came. And I remember, I mean, I I called it on the morning of the Oscars or the day before last year, that parasite was going to win now, despite 1917 dominant. The other thing is that it's a foreign film. Right. And I just felt like, you know, like in the golden globes, for example, it wasn't even eligible to be in best picture for, mm-hmm. you know, best picture drama. Um, and I just, I, that was kind of a wild, card element about it where um you know that that allowed um it to sort of sneak in there so to speak at the end because um you know maybe uh it was given a fairer shake at the oscars um whereas in other um award shows they may have just said okay here's your token best foreign language film award that's what we're giving to you but yeah no that we don't necessarily have a clear substitute for that in this year's field and yeah to your point looking at the field a best picture field i don't even know what i'd point to as like oh if it's not nomadland this is what it's going to be like yeah just nothing else really feels like it has any sort of trend upward i think that's a good way to put it what you were talking about like even though parasite hadn't been you know hoovering up the awards up to up to the academy um you know up to the academy awards date but it, it did have this like groundswell of momentum even though like for no reason whatsoever it felt like other than just like Bong Joon-ho is like a cult personality. I don't know. Um, it, yeah, you don't really well, have the movie is really good. I mean, that's one reason. Sure. That, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm talking about like even transcending that, right? Like people's yeah. conversations. Around. But I mean, like, look, the movie being as good as it is, is what people think, what drove people to talk about it so much. So I think that's definitely a big part of it. All that's to say, Scott, is that, you know, Thomas Vinterberg is a slam dunk for best director at the Oscars. Sorry, Chloe Zhao's not going to win. So. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what, another round, I think one best, best uh, international feature. Yeah, at whatever that means at the Baptist yeah. International. I don't know foreign language. I, I I guess it is foreign. It is foreign language, right? I think. Yeah, I think Danish. so. Yeah. It's Danish. So, mm-hmm. um, anyway, maybe maybe that uh maybe that'll be spoiler for Chloe. That would just be crazy. That would be so wild. Oh my lord. Um, if if, oh my if you god. thought people were mad before about the Oscars not honoring women directors, wait and t- see what would happen if that happened. Yeah. <laughs> not uh, saying anything about the film like because you know sure we haven't seen that, good, that you know, that's yeah. one of the few that we haven't seen but mm-hmm. anyway uh moving on from that i don't know if i have too much more to add so we'll just move on from that to talk about our other news story uh this is like casting news slash just like new film news right because i don't think we heard anything about this as of yet but we did hear this past week that searchlight pictures is teaming up so you know people behind nomadland i believe i think they're i think that's searchlight right um and a very long track record of being you know very good in award season and sort of the award, the sort of the awards baity label for was Fox. Now Disney is going to be working with Sam Mendes on his next project, which is an adaptation, I think, of a book called Empire of Light uh, with Olivia Coleman. So thematic for this episode uh, in negotiations to star. So which I, you know, I say it's an adaptation. I actually don't know that it is one. I'll have to double double check on that. But the, st- the film is about a love story set in and around a uh, beautiful called old cinema of the south coast of England. So not an homage to Hollywood, um, but more an homage to cinema, right? And then this case is on the south coast of England in the 1980s. So it gets, you know, a semi-period vibe. Feels very Oscar Beatty to say that now, though. I mean, I, I guess like Sam Mendes at this point is, he's pretty much only doing Oscar Beatty type stuff. But look, I think this is an interesting project. Uh, Sam Mendes certainly has my attention after 1917, which is, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time. And uh, look, Olivia Coleman 
as I mentioned sort of at the outset of the episode when we were talking about her and the father, like she's very charming. I think she's wonderful, wonderful. I'm watching her in the crown right now too, uh, during her run as Queen Elizabeth. And, you know, it's very interesting to watch, see that performance and then go watch something like the father where, you know, the emotional range of Queen Elizabeth is very narrow because um, she's this sort of austere, right? Leader that you don't really get, you don't really penetrate too much into um, not in, in sort of an emotional range way. Like she has to put on this front constantly. Whereas in the father, obviously she's showing a lot of, lots of emotion. And uh, yeah. So Scott, what do you think about this? Yeah. This sounds like a really interesting film, a love story set around an, an old cinema, right? Like you would yeah. imagine that the love story will not just be between two people, but will probably involve movies to some extent as well, which, you know, I mean, if you plan to win an Oscar that, for it, he better, it better be about movies too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's, you know, that's something that definitely strikes a chord with me. Uh, sure. Absolutely. I, I am a sucker for a good love letter to, to Hollywood and to the movies. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Olivia Coleman at this point just feels like one of those actresses who like, whenever you see her now, it's like she has a chance to get nominated. Like she's, she's yeah. almost reached like a Meryl Streep or Viola Davis level. It feels like at this point yeah. where again, every time you see them, it's like, well, that's, you know, probably a nomination worthy performance. Um, and you know, it, maybe she, it, which is, which is, you know, crazy, right? Cause she's, you know, much older. She's, she's come into this part of her career much older uh, than, than a lot of actresses. Um, although Viola Davis was, was kind of the same way, I guess, you know, she was a little bit older when she finally got like the help, I think was kind of her breakthrough, but, um, or, you know, I guess she had doubt, but that was just one scene that she was in that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, her and Sam Mendes teaming up. Yeah. This movie is, is almost certainly going to be making a big run for, uh, the Oscars, you know, in, in the year that it is released. So, um, yeah, full steam ahead. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I was just trying to think back and think like, what is it that catapulted Olivia Coleman just into like, you know, prominence and like in, into getting this type of sort of air about her that if she's in something, then it's going to be something that she could be nominated for. I mean, she had the night manager, which I believe she won awards for, or at least was definitely nominated for Emmys, but that's obviously on the TV side. And then obviously she has things like the crown, but like before the favorite, like it's not like she's out here, throwing haymakers with their performance. I was going to say it, it really is the favorite. Like I, yeah. I, I think that was, and, and I think some of it is the TV aspect of it too, right? The fact that she's now been nominated and won stuff for the crown. It just feels like every single award show you turn on now to watch, like yeah. Olivia Coleman is nominated for something. Yeah. And she was like, I think she was the main, she was like the lead in broad church, which is another one of those BBC right. dramas that I think was right, pretty right. prestigious. That was the yeah. one with her and David Tennant, I believe. Where, yeah. Like, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. And that ran for like, I think that ran for like three or four seasons as well. And um, like I said, the night manager, which is kind of where I discovered her. Cause I discovered her. Or that, that was the first thing that I'd seen her in that I could be like, Oh, that's Olivia Coleman. Um, yeah. I mean, she's wonderful in that. She plays a sort of MI6 sort of uh, case manager type thing where she's sort of uh, the handler for Tom Hiddleston's character who's the lead, but yeah, very interesting stuff because it feels like, I mean, cause also besides the favorite, like she hasn't done really much else in terms of like awards conversation stuff. Like that's that. And now the father, um, but it does, it does feel like, again, and I think it's because of the TV side, like you're it's saying, because that, of the TV thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that she just feels like, Oh, she's in something like, she's one of those people who can like, I feel like make that jump and just like automatically be like, have it translate. But, and this, I think it's because of the hey. type of TV that she's been in, especially like, the crown. Like that's just so prestigious, like television wise. Hey, them that follow very underrated movie from 2019. She's yeah, very, very good at it. So. 
Yeah, I mean, Olivia Coleman, Caitlin Deaver, like, why? I don't know why I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, I need to watch Caitlin Deaver's really not a, that in, in it that much, but yeah, you still should have seen it by now. All right, well, you shouldn't have said that because now I'm not going to see it. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. All right, so I think that should just about do it for episode 137 of Some Like It's Scott. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Um, baseball's back. Feeling great. The Indians just uh, pulled off a sweep this weekend. So um, I'm enjoying this fle- fleeting happiness. I, I'm sure it will be fleeting. Well, the other day I was joking that uh, maybe I'll start supporting. I, I asked myself every single year whether I'm going to start following baseball this year. And then something like the Braves start 0-4. So I'm like, yeah, maybe I won't. But then I checked the uh, I checked their record at the end of this weekend. And they're 4 yep. against so They've come back Scott's following baseball this year. Um, but they're like... They're six like six the in the eighth right now. Six, six, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think they win that. They sweep the Phillies, I think. So that would be yeah. that's a pretty good performance overall. Uh anyway, yeah, that's our that's our fickle baseball conversation. More to come on that, I'm sure. All right, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter or on Letterboxd? At Scarby Dent on both. Yeah, uh, at Shelton 2013 for me on both as well. It, please also check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. There's a bunch of different reward tiers over there. Check them out. If you can subscribe and support us, that'd be awesome. We'd really appreciate that. If not, that's okay. You can still find us on, you know, wherever you find your podcast, typically Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Google Podcasts. I think that we're pretty much everywhere at this point. Um, we'd love it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, uh, just so we can continue to reach a broader audience there. Uh, other than that, we really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. We'll be back next week, moving on from 2020, even though, I guess, I don't know, the father 2020, 2021, we can just... Uh, We'll just move it down. We'll kick that conversation for a year from now to, to figure that out. Um, but next week, we are definitely going to be talking about a movie that is 2021, and that is Shiva Baby, a comedy film written and directed by newcomer Emma Seligman, who like already has an HBO series coming up that seems like it's like similar, like similarly themed at the very least. Um, I think I joked with you, Scott, that she's creating the you know, uh, you know, fill in the blank baby universe <laughs> over here because I think her Sugar Baby is the name of her HBO mm-hmm. series, but I think it's hilarious. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. See you down the road.